Habakkuk's prayer, part 2, Habakkuk chapter 3 and verses 8 through 15 is what we're considering tonight. And uh, note, uh, once again, the theme is uh, the just shall live by faith, and uh, that key verse is found in Habakkuk chapter 2-4. There you go. Excellent. And uh, we have worked our way through the book. We got a first question from Habakkuk, God's answer. Habakkuk's second question, God's second answer. We have worked our way through that, and now we come to Habakkuk's vision and prayer uh, here in chapter 3. You really could break the book of Habakkuk down like this. You've got chapter 1, his questions. We note there's two major questions. And then God comes back with the just shall live by faith. And now we've got Habakkuk's response in chapter 3, which we find is a response of faith. And just by way of review, uh, here were the two troubling questions in chapter 1, verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear, even cry out to you violence and you will not save? His first question was in relationship to his own people in the land of Judah. And he was like, why is this allowed to continue on? Why isn't God doing something about this? Well, then God said he was going to raise up the Chaldeans to do something about it. That bothered him even worse. Habakkuk 1.13, you are pure eyes and to behold evil, cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? In other words, uh, using the Chaldeans and more wicked people to bring punishment on his people, Judah. Well, in chapter 2, we have God's response as seen in the key verse of the book, as I say, Habakkuk 2.4, where God says, the just shall live by his faith. The remainder of chapter 2 consists of five woe judgments on Babylon that ultimately conclude with this, that the earth will one day be filled with the very knowledge of the glory of God, and that will take place in the kingdom. Well, that brings us now to chapter 3, where we find ourselves tonight. And in chapter 3, Habakkuk totally accepts what God is saying. He responds to the message of God with faith. Um, I don't sense rebellion in the prophet. He just didn't understand. He had some honest questions. I don't get it. And God says, you know, what I'm looking for you uh, out of you is, is a response of faith. And what is faith? Well, faith is taking God at his word. That's what it is. And that's what Habakkuk does. There's no argument, just acceptance of what he says. He does have a petition, as we saw in chapter 3, verse 2, and that is that God in wrath would remember mercy. So he's asking for some mercy, even though God's going to do this to uh, bring discipline, to bring judgment on his people. He's asking that in wrath, God would remember mercy. Well, Habakkuk chapter 3, 3 through 15, consists of two interrelated poems, which are called a prayer, but in content are more like a poetic psalm. In poetic terms, Habakkuk recalls how God, in the past, with great majesty and power, led his people out of Egypt and to the promised land. Habakkuk rehearses various details related to God's deliverance of his people from Egypt, their journey to Mount Sinai, and then the movement from Sinai to the Jordan River, and then into the promised land. So he's kind of following that trajectory in terms of of the exodus and God leading his people along uh, to Sinai and then on to the the promised land. 
This really is an ode to how God powerfully delivered and led his people in the past. There's a tremendous focus on the past here and how God has worked in the past. And what's that tell you about God? Well, if you're Habakkuk, that speaks also to the future because God does not change. And if God has worked this way in the past in relationship to his people, in relationship to covenant faithfulness, he can be dependent upon to do the same in the future. So this becomes the basis for faith and assurance. There is value in studying past history in terms of how God has worked because it reveals his character and his power. And so note uh, this uh, twofold emphasis, overlapping emphasis. Habakkuk 3, we looked at this last time, verses 3 through 7, God's majesty on display in relationship to how he's worked on behalf of his people in the past. And now tonight, God's power on display in verses 8 through 15. Well, let's get to the text. Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 8. O Lord, that's Yahweh, that's the covenant name for God, what we call his covenant name, that what the Jews consider the most sacred name for God, which is uh, really translated as Yahweh. Uh, O Lord, Yahweh, you were displeased with the rivers. Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation? Now, in verses 8 through 15, we have a vivid poetical description of how God victoriously led the children of Israel, showing his power in the use of natural forces. That's really a a good summary of what we're looking at here tonight. And uh, notice it talks about the rivers here. The rivers and the sea are here personified. But in reality, God's wrath was against human rebellion that sought to get in the way of delivering his people in him bringing them to the promised land. So in the plagues, God brought Egypt, that that God brought on Egypt, he showed his power over the supposed Nile River, the Nile River God. Uh, He also dried up the Red Sea as they came to the promised land. He dammed up the Jordan River, allowing his people to cross over. So uh, we think uh, this is the imagery in view here. Um, It really wasn't with the rivers that God had a beef. It's with the the people groups that he's dealing with in in the whole process here. Well, God brought powerful deliverance in the past, and he's able to do it again. This description here speaks of God riding on his horses and his chariots of salvation. And we believe this symbolically speaks of God defeating the enemy using the forces of nature to do it. Strong emphasis as we will move through the text here tonight on this. In fact, this whole section emphasizes God's sovereign power as seen in his controlling and using the forces of nature. Verse 9, again, remember, this is in poetic language. Verse 9, your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows. Selah, you divided the earth with rivers. Some of the language here is difficult. In fact, uh, one of the commentaries was bringing out that uh, somebody said, you know, that, boy, some of this language is like, uh, you know, a hundred different ways of look, looking at this. I mean, it's a, it's a little uh, um, difficult. But the main point is clear. God's bow was made ready, meaning it was pulled from its sheath, made ready for action. Uh, the military action on behalf of God uh, was on behalf of his people, and it was steeled with divine oaths. Notice, oaths were sworn over your arrows. Uh, and this would seem to indicate that there is a divine intention backed with a divine oath that he's going to carry through on this, what he's going to do uh, for his people. John MacArthur says the Lord's arrows were commissioned under divine oaths. And then we have another sila. 
which is an interjection that indicates some kind of a pause, uh, perhaps for dramatic effect. There's an emphasis being made here. When God prepares himself for war and backs it with oaths, watch out. Who's ever in the way is in trouble. We see this kind of language uh, back here in Deuteronomy where uh, God says, For I raise my hand to heaven and say as I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. So again, poetic language emphasizing that God is going to have his way uh, with his enemies, who are really the enemies of his people. When it says that God divided the earth with rivers, in context, it most likely refers to God's division of the waters related to the events of the Exodus, uh, the Nile, the Jordan, uh, and so forth. Verse 10, the mountains saw you and trembled, the overflowing of the water passed by, the deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. Again, various aspects of nature are personified as reacting to God's presence and power. The mountain trembles in his presence. The ESV translates this as, as writhed, as writhed. Uh, we've got, I've got a quote here from the Bible Knowledge Commentary, which says the Hebrew verb translated writhe depicts a person twisting or turning while seized with pangs like a woman in childbirth. So again, the picture is what's happening to the mountains as, as God's presence is made felt. Uh, his command is over the waters. Uh, note, uh, the deep here refers to the sea or to the, or to the ocean uh, waters. And uh, that is a, a pretty amazing reality. Um, little picture here. Uh, it's amazing how God can stir up the storm. Uh, there's a tremendous emphasis in the Bible on the fact that it is God who controls the weather. God controls the forces of nature. And I always think this is quite interesting in the light of man is somehow thinking he can control the weather. Now, I, I do think you can do something about pollution and those kind of things. Uh, when you're emitting pollution, you probably just stop doing it and it'll help the situation. <laughs> this makes sense to me. But as far as really sovereignly controlling the weather, it's interesting. Back in Genesis, uh, God has promised that as long as the earth remains, we're going to have the change in seasons. Well, tremendous emphasis on God controlling the weather. Uh, I uh, love this in Mark 4, uh, where you have a storm and it says... Then he, Jesus, arose, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? <laughs> Not every day we have somebody comes along and can calm the storm. Uh, and they feared exceedingly, and they said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? That is a very good question. Who can this be? I have never known anybody that can control the weather. I had a charismatic cousin one time. There was a wedding taking place. And uh, it was his wedding or uh, maybe it was a, a sister. But anyway, it was raining like crazy. And he was trying to command the weather. <laughs> maybe you should go outside and try it. Might be a little more effective out there. Uh, yeah. Uh, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? That, that's an amazing thing. And then another storm uh, context, this is when uh, Christ asked Peter to come out on the water. 
And it says, and immediately, of course, Peter looks around and sees the boisterous waves and starts to go under, takes his eyes off Jesus. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Well, maybe it was those 12 foot waves. Huh? Yeah. Uh, And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. It's interesting. They connected him calming the storm with being worthy of worship. Why is that? Well, only God is to be worshipped in the scriptures. Only God has this kind of power. And they made that connection. I wonder where they got that idea. Well, one place, perhaps, you have to realize these were Jews who knew the Old Testament scriptures. And it says in Psalm 107, they see the works of the Lord, talking about these sailors who go out on the ocean Uh, They see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep, for he commands and raises the stormy wind. Where does it come from? Well, God's be sovereignly behind it, which lifts up the, the waves of the sea. And then verse 29 says, he calms the storm so that its waves are still. Who does this? They see the works of who? The Lord. He commands and raises the stormy wind, as we saw there. But then he calms the storm so that its waves are still. Well, here comes Jesus, and he does this. Who does this? Yahweh the Lord, who does this in the New Testament. Jesus the Lord God, who is appropriately worshipped. Well, God alone controls the forces of nature. And Jesus did this, proving that he is God. Well, the disciples on certain occasions were supernaturally empowered to heal people, to cast out demons, but unique to Jesus really were power miracles over nature. He alone calmed the storm. No disciple ever did this. None of the apostles ever did this. This is unique to Jesus, who is God come in the flesh. So sovereign power over the forces of nature is unique to God alone. Now, if Satan ever has any power in this realm, it is only by permission. And I think you might point to certain texts and say, well, what about this? What's happening to Job's family and this and that? It's interesting. Satan does seem to be in the mix. But I want you to realize Satan can only do what he's allowed to do by permission. Ultimately, behind it is the sovereign hand of God. Uh, The emphasis in, in Scripture is that God controls nature. Liberty Bible Commentary says the overall picture is that of an omnipotent God who has the power capable of affecting his will anywhere in his creation. And we have this emphasis again and again uh, here in Psalm 114, 3 through 7. It says, the sea saw it and fled. Jordan turned back again, talking about uh, uh, the uh, entry into the promised land. The mountains skipped like rams, the little hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you fled? The Red Sea, evidently. O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like rams. O little hills, like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. So the sturdy mountains of the earth crumble and writhe in God's presence. The vast oceans of the world respond with surging, crashing waves as if their hands were raised in praise to God. It all responds to the sovereign power of God. And then another event, verse 11, the sun and the moon stood still in their habitation at the light of your arrows as they went, at the shining of your glittering spear. Now the sun and the moon stood still at the battle of Gibeon as seen in Joshua chapter 10. 
That occasion also saw a great hailstorm that God used to defeat the enemy of his people. Uh, so note, note this. Um, as we find in uh, Joshua chapter 10, 11 through 13. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah. And they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. So boy, God's just nailing them with these hailstones. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun stand still over Gibeon and the moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the, sun, so the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jazer? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. We believe this is what Habakkuk is referring to here in verse 11. The whole imagery that we have been talking about poetically in verses 8 through 11 shows that God, as a mighty warrior in the past, has often used the forces of nature on behalf of his earthly people, Israel. Just remember, God is in charge of the weather. He controls the forces of nature. That's a really important reality. Uh, Mark Twain is credited with this saying. Others say, no, it really didn't come from Mark Twain, but a friend of his, wh whoever. It's really famously attached to Mark Twain, who said all kinds of things. But he, uh, everybody complains about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. And that is a truism. <laughs> Who's really, who really controls the weather? Well, it's God. Sometimes people laugh at me when I say things like, I, I like to listen to the wind. It's like, that's because it's just blowing straight through, right? <laughs> uh, but you know what it does? It reminds me of the living God. That's why I like to listen to the wind. Now, I don't always listen to the wind. I get nothing else done. But uh, it does remind me of the living God who controls nature. And it reminds me of Jesus in John 3, 8, who said, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot where, tell where it comes from and where it goes. And so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The way of the wind is mysterious. But it is God who controls it all. You see, movement speaks of life. And the moving of the wind bears testimony to the living God, the sovereign God of the universe who controls these forces of nature. Verse 12, you march through the land in indignation. You trample the nations in anger. So again, God is pictured here as marching across the earth, crushing defiant nations in his way. Now, when God was ready to take his people to the promised land, that is how it happened. Uh, nobody could stop them. Uh, Pharaoh tried, right? Okay, you can go. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Let's get the army. Let's go get them. Nope, I'm sorry. They're on their way. Uh, it could not be stopped. It didn't work. The Canaanites tried. It didn't work. God trampled them as he brought his people into the land. Nothing or anything could stop them. When God, with an oath, determines what he's going to do, it's going to happen, and nobody can stop it. And why did God march through the land in indignation? Why did he trample the nations? Well, verse 13 plainly tells us the why. Verse 13, you went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from foundation to Nick, Selah. Why did God do this? 
Note this. You went forth for the salvation of your people. God did this for the salvation of his people Israel, for their deliverance. Liberty Bible Commentary, God is not disinterested in the concerns of his people, as the prophet had feared, as we saw in chapter 1. He has before brought both his majesty and power to bear on their behalf for, on their behalf for their deliverance, and will do so again. That is the bottom line issue here. And then nestled in this little verse here, verse 13, we have the statement, For salvation with your anointed. Now, the ESV translates this as, for the salvation of your anointed. The question is this, who is the anointed here? And that's a good question. There are a number of possibilities and no consensus. Is this a prophetic statement or a a historical one? Another good question. Some think the context uh, here um, must be historical and the anointed one must refer to Israel. Uh, However, this term anointed is is singular and it is never used anywhere else in the Old Testament of Israel. Uh, This fact would point to probably a person being in view, not the nation. Others think the anointed here refers to Moses, whom God used as the human instrument to bring his people out of Egypt. Perhaps, that's true. Uh, He did use Moses in that way. Some suggest David, but really it's tied more closely to the the context of the Exodus or to perhaps the uh, Babylonian captivity, which doesn't really seem to directly tie contextually to David. Still others think the verse is prophetic and points to the deliverance through King Cyrus who God does refer to as his anointed. Even though he was a Gentile king, God used him as a special instrument of deliverance from the Babylonian captivity, as we see in Isaiah 45.1. I tend to think there is a progression of thought in view here. Yes, God has brought about deliverance of his people in the past, but he's going to do so again in the future. And only this time he's not going to do it merely using the forces of nature. He's going to do it in conjunction with his anointed one. Ultimately, the Messiah of whom Cyrus was a type. Moody Bible Commentary says, The English translation of the Hebrew term Messiah applies to the Messiah himself in this context. Uh, Again, the Bible Knowledge Commentary says, The term probably refers to the coming Messiah. By preserving the people of Israel, delivering them out of Egypt, and then later from the Babylonian captivity, God maintained the line for the Messiah. So he's doing this. What is one reason he's doing this? Well, if Israel gets snuffed out, what happens to the Messiah? The promise of a a coming Messiah through the nation of Israel. Well, that could not be allowed to happen. One reason God's delivering his people back here has the Messiah ultimately in view, the anointed one. And then verse 13 continues on by saying, You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from foundation to Nick, Selah. What's this mean? Well, the picture here is of a fatal blow. It, It pictures literally the head of the house being destroyed. Again, Uh, We read in uh, the Bible Knowledge Commentary, the figure in the Hebrew is that of a building from which the gable is ripped off and then the entire structure is demolished so that the foundations are laid bare. So again, some think this is talking about Pharaoh 
and how God brought him down. Others think he's talking about Babel, the Babylonian king, Belshazzar. Still others, in keeping with the, the statement about the anointed one, believe this is ultimately going to be fulfilled in relationship to the devil, who is the head of all the wicked powers of the world. Therefore, either the Egyptian leadership or the Babylonian leadership may be in view, but behind both was ultimately Satan, uh, the head of the, of the evil house, if you will. And therefore, ultimate application here may have Satan in view. <clears throat> Another quote from the, uh, Bab- uh, from the Moody uh, Bible commentary. When the Lord comes in judgment, he will strike the head of the house of evil, which in addition to the immediate context is an allusion uh, to the promise of the Messiah's ultimate victory over Satan. There is a kingdom mix in the book. You do understand that, right? We saw this in Habakkuk chapter 2 and uh, verse 14 that ultimately looks to the end of history. Uh, that is pre-millennial. Uh, when the Lord shall uh, put in place, and millennial, uh, when the Lord shall put in place all the enemies of Israel, put them down. Certainly God in the past has applied a moral wound to Israel's enemies, such as Egypt, such as Babylon. And he will certainly do so with finality uh, in conjunction with the coming of the Lord. Verse 14, you thrust through with his own arrows, the head of his villages. They came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret. So there's a context here where we don't know exactly what's in view here either. But uh, whoever this is, uh, they're coming out like they're really going to take advantage of these poor people, uh, God's people, Israel. And uh, then uh, God turns the tables on them. Again, it's not really clear. Are we talking about uh, the Egyptians? Are we talking about the Babylonians? It may refer very well to Pharaoh's pursuit of the children of Israel as they were leaving Egypt. Recall that they changed their mind and they went after them. And they looked like they'd be pretty vulnerable, right? I mean, these, these were slaves in Egypt. They had, they had no instruments of war or anything. We're just going to go back, go after them and bring them back. Well, that did not happen as God uh, turned the, the, the tables on them, so to speak, at the, at the Red Sea. But uh, verse 15 adds credibility to this view as it poetically seems to describe God's intervention on Israel's behalf at the Red Sea. Verse 15, you walk through the sea with your horses. So again, uh, the connection here with the sea. You walk through the sea with your horses through the heap of great waters. The Exodus is the major redemptive event in the Old Testament era, in Old Testament history, being mentioned hundreds of times in the scriptures. In fact, it's mentioned so many times in this way or that way to really try to find exactly how many times it's mentioned. Uh, It's very hard to find somebody that's done that kind of a study, but it is the major redemptive event in the Old Testament. Coming to a climax with God drowning the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. And most commentators agree they think that's what's being talked about here in verse 15. And it was a, it wasn't a, a memorable event. An amazing event. Exodus 14, 31. That's the last verse. And then chapter 15, verse 1. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord. And believed the Lord and his servant Moses. 
Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. Just as the Lord trampled the Egyptian army with his own horses, so to speak, in the Red Sea, so he would defeat the Babylonian power currently on the scene in the days of Habakkuk. And ultimately will strike the head of Satan at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Historically, God has victoriously led his people out of the mighty grasp of Egypt through the Red Sea and on to Mount Sinai, revealing his glory all along the way. And then from Mount Sinai on through the wilderness, then through the Jordan River and into the promised land. God led them all the way. With many great uh, events where he intervened through nature. Therefore, the point is clear. The God who can do all of this can certainly be counted on to lead his people in triumph over their enemies. No matter how great they might appear at the moment. And Babylon at the moment appeared to be really great. But he's reflecting now on, on how God has led in the past. God would one day do it again. That's what he's looking forward to, according to the, what God had said in, in chapter 2. It would happen in God's appointed way, in his timing, and for his glory. I like this quote from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceedingly small. Though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness grinds he all. Boy, there is truth in that. The sovereign plan of God has a way of working its way out according to the, the mills of God. They grind slow and you say, boy, where is this going? It's taking forever to get there. It's God's timing. It's God's purpose. But I'm telling you, the conclusion of the matter is in God's hands. And that's what Habakkuk is seeing here. Uh, no t- pun intended with the word exactly here. With exactness grinds he all. He is sovereign over all. And faith trusts his character. Faith trusts his word to bring to pass exactly what he has promised. Even in the face of circumstances that say, boy, that, how's that ever going to happen? Well, just remember what has happened with Israel in the past. All these great events, how God intervened. He is able to do it again, and he will do it again. And all those promises that we have in the scriptures related to what God's going to do in the last days as far as delivering his people, it's going to happen. I don't know when. Remember, the mills of God grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine or exceedingly small. Well, that uh, ends our study for tonight. We'll pick it up uh, not next Sunday night. We'll finish out on the... On the uh, 16th, May 16th, we'll finish out the study here. So let's stand and have our closing song for tonight.